0: Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Almira Bayrosli. A COVID-19 vaccine is within reach. Breaking news. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer just announced moments
1: ago that its coronavirus vaccine is 95% effective. Tonight, news on a second vaccine. Moderna announcing its vaccine is nearly 95% effective. For those of you not acquainted with the field of vaccinology,
0: That is extraordinary. And other drug makers are hot on their trail.
1: Companies are trying to figure out now what the best way is to keep the product safe and effective.
0: Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, as well as Moderna, have already submitted a request to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for emergency authorization. They could be approved within weeks. Does this mean the end of the pandemic is in sight? Mm, Not quite.
1: Now, I've used that metaphor that the cavalry is on the way. If you're fighting a battle, and the cavalry's on the way, you don't stop shooting. You keep going until the cavalry gets here, and then you might even want to continue fighting.
0: Even if the current frontrunners are approved, distribution remains a major challenge. From the lab to a syringe, the world's most promising coronavirus vaccine needs non-stop refrigeration to
1: work. Pfizer's vaccine must be kept at 70 degrees below zero Celsius.
0: Complicating matters further, companies can produce only so many doses in the short term. Rich countries have already reserved virtually all of them. The director general of the World Health Organization spoke out on Tuesday against the so-called vaccine nationalism, referring to countries putting their own interests ahead of others in trying to secure supplies of a potential vaccine. Concerns are growing tonight about a coming free-for-all, with rich countries gobbling up supply. This carries major risks, not only to public health, but also to economic recovery and geopolitical
1: stability. Hi, it's Tom.
0: Hi, Tom. This is Elmira.
1: Nice to connect with you.
0: Here to speak with us about these risks is Tom Boyke.
1: I'm doing okay. It's, you know, it's been a long pandemic.
0: Tom is the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations and the founder and managing editor of Think Global Health. He is the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways. He joins us from his home in Washington, D.C., So we received some good news recently. Early, It looks like early results from at least two vaccine trials look very promising. But even in an advanced country like the U.S., both allocation and distribution represent very major challenges. So I want to take a step back and look at that question of allocation. The United States has reserved as many doses as possible but drug makers can produce only so much vaccine in the short term. How will U.S. agencies and states choose who gets vaccinated first?
1: It's a great question. What will happen is that uh, the FDA will authorize emergency use of one or more of these vaccines. We are likely actually to see two Uh, received that emergency use authorization in December. Those are the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, uh, which most people expect uh, that to be authorized in around December 14th. And then probably if we're on the current schedule, uh, Moderna the following week, those two vaccines. The U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention has a committee that will actually issue the guidelines on who should receive them first. They will only do that once the FDA has authorized emergency use. So it'll come a day or two after that authorization.
0: And how do you expect the CDC to structure that allocation?
1: In terms of the allocation choices, what most people expect the CDC to advise is two waves of uh, priority. The first is for frontline health workers, which in the United States is roughly 20 million people, followed by a priority for a next wave of individuals that occupy one of three groups and sometimes all three of these groups. So they will be essential workers. These are workers that the state requires to work even in a pandemic individuals that are over 65 years old. And the third group are individuals with high-risk medical conditions, so diabetes, cancer, obesity, conditions that have been shown to result with people with these conditions have have suffered worse outcomes from catching COVID. We're not sure which of those groups will go first. Uh, They do vary in size. There are roughly 50 million people who are over the age of 65 in the United States, around 40 million essential workers, and then around 100 million individuals with high-risk medical conditions. So they are likely to get the vaccines next. What we know about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines is that Pfizer has promised to deliver in the U.S. 25 million doses by the end of 2020. And Moderna has promised to deliver 20 million doses to the United States by the end of 2020. Those vaccines both require two doses per person. So you can cut those numbers in half and there you would expect roughly 20 million individuals who could theoretically be vaccinated in just the next six weeks.
0: And then how long after would it take to actually have a plan to vaccinate everyone in the country?
1: So there's there's a plan, whether it's uh, fully thought out and gets followed, we'll see. But the plan is that then these next priority groups will receive these vaccines. The vaccines will be distributed in multiple ways Um, So they'll be distributed to hospitals, they'll be distributed to private sector pharmacies, and they'll be distributed to states and localities for their public health departments. The challenge that we have seen so far, though, is that the CDC has only distributed $200 million to states to support this rollout for what will ultimately be by far the largest vaccination campaign in U.S. history. And it's not entirely clear how they mean to monitor And enforce the allocation guidelines that the CDC has provided. In past pandemics, uh, states and localities have not followed them sufficiently.
0: This morning in Health Watch, the H1N1 vaccine. It is now being rushed out the door to clinics all across the country. In the spring of 2009, an influenza virus known as swine flu emerged in the U.S. It quickly spread across the world. Because the strain closely resembled the yearly flu, it didn't take long for researchers to develop a new vaccine. By October of that year, doses were ready for distribution.
1: But we learned today that some Wall Street firms have gotten the vaccine to give to employees who are at high risk for the virus. That news did not sit well with many doctors and hospitals who have yet to get any vaccine. There really isn't a ready-made way to get it out to people quickly. Protection against the swine flu is going to be delayed for millions of Americans.
0: But the U.S. botched that rollout. Understanding what went wrong in 2009 will be crucial to end our crisis.
1: Part of it is they provided vaccines to states and localities according to their population size. That makes sense from a logistical standpoint. It's also politically palatable. It makes no sense from a public health standpoint. The reason is that states have different populations of high-risk, high-priority individuals. Washington, D.C., only one-third of the population is overweight and obese. But if you go to a state like West Virginia or Alabama, it's closer to half. Different states have uh, many more frontline health workers than others, and you have seen significant uh, differences in the distribution of individuals over 65. So distributing just on the basis of population size doesn't make sense when the states have uh, different needs that they need to serve. The second challenge you had is that states and localities were somewhat left to their own devices in applying the allocation guidelines they got from the CDC so what you saw was racial disparities in who received uh, the vaccine. So Black and Latino Americans had much lower coverage. Um, you also saw frontline health workers have lower coverage. The last is you did not see a robust communication and engagement effort. And the worry is that unless we provide states with more resources, more ongoing guidance, that you may see the repeat with these new vaccines that we will have for the coronavirus.
0: The vaccine for COVID-19, the rollout will also come with a backdrop of a complicated presidential transition, and the United States is very polarized. What obstacles does this present, and can they be overcome?
1: So you are uh, very polite. Complicated is a a euphemism for what has happened so far. Um, Largely, we've lost 20 days to delay over fights over the election results. That's a challenge because that's 20 days lost in coordinating between the two administrations that are going to oversee this vaccine distribution. It's important that we get that handoff right. At the end of the day, vaccine coverage, getting uh, the coverage that you need to see depends a lot on the confidence of the public. And once we lose that public, it's hard to regain. A second reason why it's important that we get that right is the U.S. between now and March 1st is projected to have an additional 220,000 deaths. That trajectory we can meaningfully shift if we can get vaccines to the vulnerable and exposed population that can benefit most from that vaccination.
0: Getting all Americans vaccinated will be hard enough, but that's nothing compared to what low and middle income countries will face, especially because a handful of rich countries are already hoarding doses of potential vaccines. It's becoming like a bidding
1: war. Pope Francis has warned rich countries against hoarding COVID-19 vaccines once they come out, urging countries to make them available to all. But in Africa and Asia, lower- and middle-income countries are looking on in dismay.
0: The U.S. and a handful of others have already reserved nearly 80% of Pfizer's initial vaccine doses. These governments represent just 14% of the world's population. Meanwhile, researchers at Duke University's Global Health Innovation Center estimate that people in poorer countries may have to wait until 2024 to get vaccinated. We know that this pandemic is far from over, and small states cannot also be left out in the race to seek an effective vaccine. In a global community, parts of the world cannot be made safe in isolation. Vaccine hoarding will harm us all. It's not hard to imagine the public health consequences of this. Vaccinating everyone in some countries and no one in others will lead to a lot more deaths than vaccinating the most vulnerable everywhere.
1: Last week, I sent a letter to all member states requesting them to join the vaccine arm of the ACT Accelerator.
0: That's why some international organizations have established vaccine coalitions, like the COVID-19 Vaccine Global Access Facility, known as COVAX, The initiative set up by the World Health Organization aims to ensure 2 billion doses of of safe, effective, and affordable COVID-19 vaccines by 2021. Already, more than 180 countries have joined COVAX, but this doesn't include the United States. President Donald Trump's administration says that's in part due to the World Health Organization's involvement. And many of the countries that have joined are still making their own individual deals with drug
1: makers. In the past month, the European Commission has been working tirelessly to secure doses of potential vaccines. And tomorrow, we authorize a contract for up to 300 million doses of the vaccine developed by BioNTech and Pfizer well, the EU has already signed three
0: other deals with pharmaceutical companies working on COVID-19 vaccines. In total, the bloc has secured nearly one billion potential doses.
1: The United Kingdom has secured a deal for an initial delivery of five million doses of a brand new vaccine developed by the U.S. biotech firm Moderna.
0: Tom and others call this vaccine nationalism, and its consequences extend far beyond public health.
1: It is actually what we've largely seen in past global health emergencies. In a scenario where we've had an emergency and there has been limited supplies of a medical intervention that can make a meaningful difference, wealthy nations have hoarded in the past. It's important that we avoid that outcome in this case, not just because it's morally the right thing to do, although it is, Um, Not just because it has a public health benefit of ending the pandemic as soon as possible and then avoiding unnecessary deaths, which it does, it's important that we avoid this outcome for both economic and geopolitical reasons. The economic reason, of course, is if nations are having to be shut down longer due to trying to suppress the spread of this virus without a vaccine – That has consequences on the United States and other nations. Even countries that have addressed this pandemic relatively well, like think South Korea, have suffered severe economic consequences from the pandemic occurring uh, and how it's been its effects in other nations. The other toll is geopolitically. If nations are forced to wait and to watch – why the United States or the United Kingdom or other governments consume the early vaccine doses, then there will, of course, be resentment at the lack of ability to get those doses and a potential geopolitical fallout around further cooperation. If we we cannot cooperate on sharing a life-saving vaccine in a scenario in which it is in every nation's Interest to cooperate, it's hard to imagine us cooperating on preparing for the next pandemic or any number of other collective action challenges we have, such as climate change, reducing proliferation of nuclear weapons, or uh, the whole gamut of where you really need nations to work together to make progress.
0: And what might be some of the immediate effects we could see from vaccine nationalism?
1: In this scenario, If nations are unable to get access to an early vaccine, there are a couple of different things you you may see. In the early days of this pandemic, more than 70 nations plus the EU seized local supplies or imposed export restrictions, not allowing the export of personal protective equipment like masks, ventilators, and other medical supplies. You may see that around critical inputs into vaccines and therapeutics, where a lot of those are made, the supply chains for those are unavoidably international. And you may see nations trying to find ways of getting some leverage so they can get access to early doses. So a good example of how countries are dependent on each other in pharmaceutical or vaccine supply chains is an adjuvant that is made from the Chilean soap bark tree. So it is – the raw material only comes from Chile and is processed in Sweden. Neither of those two nations manufacture vaccines at all. Um, So for instance, if they were to have insufficient doses, particularly for those vaccines that depend on that adjuvant, you may see them leveraging that – the supply of that adjuvant as a way of getting access – This exists across the pharmaceutical supply chain. So there are countries like Italy that disproportionately produce pharmaceutical-grade glass. India is the world's largest contract vaccine manufacturing entity. So there's dependence all across the supply chain. And you may see, if we don't manage to work out a system of sharing, that nations leverage those dependencies as a way of – trying to get access to doses, but it may result in the breakdown of the system in the short term. The other way you may see it is that nations are forced to seek supplies of vaccine they would not otherwise use. The vaccines that we've been talking about, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, of course, are not the only candidates in development. Uh, There are candidates being developed in China and Russia, Which may end up be proven as uh, safe and effective, but there are some reasons to worry about how the clinical development has occurred on some of those vaccines. And, uh, you know, provided they're proven safe and effective, I think the more vaccines approved, regardless from where they come from, the better. But if you have countries being forced to take unproven vaccines or feeling compelled to take unproven vaccines because they're the only vaccines they can get access to, I worry about that.
0: We'll be right back. If you're getting a lot out of the important ideas shared on our podcast, there's another show we've been listening to that we think you'll love. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains, produced by the University of Chicago, brings you engaging stories about the leading academic research and pivotal scientific breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Effective global cooperation will be very hard to achieve for a simple reason. National leaders must answer to their own citizens – A spike in coronavirus cases is forcing some countries in Europe to go back into lockdown. Doctors in Belgium describe the situation there as a war zone. Patients have to share rooms and medical workers are warning it's just a matter of days until the country runs out of ICU beds. As a record number of Americans remain hospitalized, there is no community or corner of our nation safe from the reach of the virus. At a time when lockdowns and other public health restrictions are destroying livelihoods, they worry that voters won't understand or care about the long-term benefits of sharing the vaccine. A number of unauthorized protests against lockdowns have taken place in Germany. Water cannon and pepper spray deployed by police to disperse the demonstrators.
1: In Berlin, police were forced to break up a protest by thousands of demonstrators who defied calls to wear masks and keep a distance.
0: But cooperation isn't a lost cause. To convince leaders to cooperate now, Tom suggests treating the problem like a prisoner's dilemma.
1: If every nation assumes other nations are going to behave like a nationalist, they will behave nationalistic also. So if everyone in the game appears to be uncooperative, there's no incentive to be the only cooperative one. The only way to shift a environment where all the players are uncooperative to being cooperative is through reciprocity, where nations can have confidence that it will be a repeat game and there will be consequences for their being uncooperative. So what my co-author Chad Bowen, and I put forward in Foreign Affairs was – the possibility of using the fact that there is interdependence in this scenario around supply chains, that there are likely to be more than one vaccine in this scenario and nations will want to have access to other vaccines, even if they haven't had advanced purchases of those. That dependency gives the rise to the possibility that you can have an incentive for nations to cooperate that you wouldn't otherwise have. What we propose in the Foreign Affairs article is that you actually enter into an agreement where countries agree to forego these export restrictions on other countries that commit to the agreement – So the risk is that if one country reneges, then they have the possibility of the other participants in that agreement doing the same uh, to them. This kind of reciprocity and dependency may seem novel in global health, but it is the lifeblood of international trade.
0: Leaders and media often describe COVID-19 as a -a once-in-a-century pandemic. This creates the impression that once we escape this crisis, we won't have to endure another anytime soon. That may be comforting, but it is also false.
1: This will not be the last pandemic. History teaches us that outbreaks and pandemics are a fact of life. But when the next pandemic comes, the world must be ready, more ready, than it was this time.
0: The truth is that, in the coming years and decades, scientists expect pandemics to become increasingly frequent and difficult to manage, owing to forces like urbanization, globalization, and climate change. Already, infectious diseases are jumping from animals to humans more often. Doctors have found evidence that suggests camels are indeed to blame for a deadly virus that has spread to humans. Just when we'd almost forgotten about it, the threat of bird flu is back.
1: COVID-19 broke out at a wild animal market in China.
0: This isn't new information. For decades, the world has ignored experts' warnings about the likelihood of major pandemics. Less than 1% of international aid for health goes to preparing for pandemics. And funding for the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has fallen by more than 25% since 2002. Tom, you were recently part of a CFR task force that looked at some of the lessons from COVID-19 and how we should prepare for the next pandemic. What changes does the world need to implement now while we still have COVID-19 raging?
1: Well, the first thing to recognize is the next potential pandemic could be emerging now, even while this current pandemic is is ongoing. Some of the major lessons, just to pull out a couple, the first is on the multilateral side. You really saw a breakdown of the multilateral system as it became beholden to geopolitical conflict between uh, the U.S. and China. It's important that we invest in revamping the multilateral system, including the World Health Organization and the United Nations and their capacity to respond. But it is also important that we stand up dedicated structures to respond to all the security and economic aspects of a crisis that sometimes have gotten left out in in this international health crisis. Uh, So we suggest they are setting up a coalition of the willing – a an emergency committee to do that. Second, it's clear in the current pandemic that the safety of the world cannot be reliant on the transparency of directly affected countries. The task force concluded, in quite an unvarnished finding, that it's clear from the evidence that China was late in reporting uh, the outbreak. Of this virus, and then for a critical time period, did not share material information that may have controlled the spread of the virus domestically and internationally. By no means is China responsible for everything that happened next. Every nation received the same information, and some uh, responded more effectively. But that said, moving into future crises, we need a different way. To identify dangerous disease events, other than depending on the transparency and honesty of governments. So, what we recommend in that context is that there be a hospital based surveillance system. You actually see those kinds of systems in other areas of international concern, like famines and the FuseNet system, but we haven't had a system quite like that. On dangerous disease events, so we we recommend the creation of one. The third area to put forward is on these vaccine and therapeutic and diagnostic issues. We are building our global approach to this problem on the fly. Um, we are building the plane while while we are flying it to try to have a mechanism. To share doses of a vaccine and to avoid this vaccine nationalism that we're talking about. In the report, we lay out an infrastructure to address that more on a standing basis and uh, found it institutionally so that when the next crisis emerges, we're not scrambling on how uh, we're going to address the challenges around sharing the life saving interventions that might make a difference.
0: You mentioned multilateralism, and you talked about the importance of the World Health Organization. And many of the longer-term recommendations from the CFR report focuses on strengthening and increasing funding for existing organizations and institutions like the WHO. All of this obviously requires political will. Can the tactics we discuss for overcoming vaccine nationalism be applied here, too?
1: It's a great question. So there is no question this issue of reciprocity and dependence exists on pandemic preparedness. We are, as we have seen in this crisis, frighteningly dependent on the behaviors of other nations. We are also in a scenario where it is no multilateral institution on its own is going to be able to impose those measures without the cooperation of the, of the affected nations. So we really need states to take the measures that they can to be able to prevent Ideally, but at a minimum, detect and respond to dangerous disease events so that other nations can remain safe. The question is aligning that in a way where nations are able to hold each other accountable and be able to monitor that progress. So, one of the things we talk about in the report around reforms to the international treaty that oversees dangerous disease events is to have much more transparency from that process. WHO being obliged to report to other member states if nations aren't complying with their notification requirements or their information sharing requirements, which is actually not something they're obliged to do currently and has they have shown in crisis after crisis are low to do. Those kinds of structures where you have uh, that kind of accountability and the possibility of effectively sanctioned from peer nations, I think are going to be important to having a better guarantee of our safety in the future.
0: Tom, thank you so much.
1: My great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: That was Tom Boyke, the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bay-Rosley. Opinion Hazard is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.